How does he offer a free beer sound to you? As a loyal listener of the show, we'd like to reward you with just that. Free beer. Courtesy of our friends at Beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight free exclusive craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash seeing red and cover just £4.95 for the postage. As an added bonus for Seeing Red listeners, sign up within the next two weeks and get two extra free beers. So that's a total of 10 free beers. Beer 52 traversed the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest small batch breweries planet Earth has to offer. Each month they deliver a case with a different theme. Themes have ranged from Germany to Korea, Norway to South Africa and even California to Finland, but they haven't forgotten their roots. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the craft beer scene. And the beauty of Beer 52 is they don't hold you to ransom. There's no lock-in and you can leave any time. I've been a customer for 12 months now and let me tell you, there is no better feeling than arriving home from work to a fresh delivery from Beer 52. This month I have particularly enjoyed the Grand Slam, a brute IPA brought to us by Black's Brewery. I love strong beers and at 6% this one definitely hit the spot. Your first box will be sent to you next day and will contain beer from all over Europe. You'll also get the award winning craft beer magazine Ferment and if that wasn't good enough they also throw in a tasty snack. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash seeing red to get your first case of 8 beers for free. And don't forget, sign up in the next two weeks and get an extra two unmissable beers free. That's www.beer52.com forward slash seeing red. That's the word beer, then the numbers 52.com. Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Mark, true crime fanatic and lover of craft beer especially when it's free. Thank you for joining me once again. Uh, so you can probably tell Bethan's still not around at the moment because I've completely screwed up with this episode today. I was going to be covering the murder of Carol Woff, international oil executive by day, high-class prostitute by night, but I then realised that I covered that in our Christmas special. So instead of heading to the salubrious surroundings of London's glittering West End, I'm going to be taking you on a journey to the far less glamorous surroundings of Wandsworth in South London, where we're going to be looking at the murder of a convicted paedophile. But before we get there, I wanted to thank all of our Patreon supporters, especially this week because today's case was originally featured in a Patreon bonus episode back in May. And I didn't want to just re-release that episode here, I did want to record it again, especially now the sound quality is a lot better, but I suppose the point I'm making here is that whether it was Carol Woff or the case that we are going to be covering today, it was always going to be a bit of a recycled story. And I won't make a habit of that, I suppose it's just a bit difficult at the moment to release a new episode every single week because it's just moi. And I also wanted to give you a little flavour of what's on offer over at our Patreon page. Um, so we have over 40 people there now supporting the show, uh, which just totally blows our mind. I don't think we're ever um, going to get our heads around it. But um, this week, special thanks to our new Patreon supporters. We have Charlotte Baker, Hannah, Rachel C., Abby Caswell, and Kelly Trainer. 
Thank you so much. Uh, Welcome merchandise is winging its way to you uh, very soon. I've forced Bethan out of Matt leave to sort it out. Um, If you'd like to come and join the party over at Patreon, then you can head over to our page at patreon.com forward slash seeing red podcast. And we will be uploading some new bonus episodes between now and the end of the year. And everyone who supports us in this way gets a little bit of seeing red merchandise in the post. Today's episode features a vigilante killing, and I don't know what it is about these kind of killings, but I find them particularly disturbing. Um, I I don't know if it's because it's people bypassing the justice system uh, to dish out their own brand of justice, or perhaps it's a fact that quite often these particular types of killings are very brutal and violent, which is certainly the case in today's story. Either way, I think justice personally is best left to the professionals, but then again, I am fortunate enough to not know what it feels like to have to take the justice system into your own hands. Andrew Cunningham was settling down for a night in front of the television on the evening of the 9th of December in 2008. Home for Andrew was a caravan in the South London borough of Wandsworth. It was a particularly vicious winter that year and the caravan had no central heating. Instead, Andrew had to make do with an electric heater. As he relaxed on the sofa, he was disturbed by a knock at the door. The 52-year-old let whoever was calling into his home and this hospitality cost him his life. He was stabbed to death, suffering wounds to his chest, throat and to the back of his head. It was the sort of ferocious, unprovoked attack that would normally prompt public outrage. But Andrew Cunningham was a convicted paedophile, jailed in 2001 for having sex with a 15-year-old girl. And it was a fact not lost on whoever killed him. As he lay dying, the murder weapon which had been used to stab him multiple times was used to mutilate Andrew's genitals. After his killer or killers had finished with him... Andrew lay in a pool of blood, practically castrated. And I think that probably is the issue for me, is the fact that these kind of vigilante killings are often so brutal. Um, We often see the victim is treated with such contempt that the violent acts carried out upon them are beyond barbaric, as was the case here. And I know it's easy to say, well, he was a convicted paedophile, he deserved it, but I honestly think nobody should be treated in that way. And I think it's probably why I have a bit of an issue with capital punishment as well. Um, I just don't ever think we should inflict torture or pain upon somebody else, on a, a fellow human being, regardless of what they've done. But as I said, I've never been in a situation where I've wanted to to do that, so that's easy for me to say. Andrew's past conviction hindered the investigation into his murder. Detectives soon discovered that people do not particularly want to help the police when the victim is a paedophile. Six months into the investigation and detectives had exhausted every possible lead and they'd hit a brick wall. No one had been charged with Andrew's murder and only two arrests have ever been made. Both of these were relatively early in the inquiry and both of those people were quickly ruled out as suspects. So this is an unsolved case that we're covering today. And from those two arrests in the early stages of the investigation, you almost get the impression the police were just clutching at straws, cracking under pressure, trying to make out that they were taking this seriously and that they did care about finding justice for Andrew Cunningham. 
To date, more than 800 people have been interviewed, some formally, others informally. And despite the murder taking place just 50 yards from a busy pub on a night when Champions League football was showing, and also just a short distance from Wembley Greyhound track on the night of a meet, all people who have been interviewed have claimed to know nothing. The officer in charge of the investigation, Detective Chief Inspector Nick Scola, who I'm sure we've mentioned before um, on a different case, but I don't know which case it was, he was convinced he or his team of officers had most likely questioned or at least spoken to whoever killed Andrew Cunningham. But with a distinct lack of evidence at the crime scene and no witnesses coming forward, there was no chance of conviction here. Speaking to the Associated Press in 2009, DCI Scola said, There may be people who know something but are refusing to tell us, and are using Mr Cunningham's background, the paedophile tag, to justify it to themselves, but we have taken 504 witness statements, so it's not as if we are seeing widespread refusal to cooperate. It is simply that those who have given statements genuinely don't appear to know much about what happened. And I do wonder if he was being slightly economical with the truth here because, you know, he's almost not wanting to close off the community by branding them as being willfully obstructive to the investigation. So he's saying that, you know, they just genuinely don't know what happened. But I think he knows that somebody that he's questioned, somebody within that community did know. They just didn't want to come forward at that point for whatever reason. So I suppose not closing them off means at a later date somebody might still come forward with evidence or information that could lead to arrest and and somebody being charged for Andrew's murder. And I really think out of the 800 or so witness statements that were eventually taken, many people would have heard within the local community and local pubs, for example, exactly what happened to Andrew that night. And they most likely know who's responsible. This is a sort of crime, after all, where the perpetrator would have most likely boasted uh, about what he'd done on that evening. DCI Scola was clearly uncomfortable with the suggestion that it was only he and his officers who cared about this case being solved. He said, I think most people still recognise the difference between right and wrong and, even in a situation like this, they recognise that taking somebody's life is wrong, regardless of the person's background. He said, I would also remind people that there is a killer still out there and a killer is a killer, no matter which way you look at it. Next time he might not be so discriminatory when choosing a victim. Andrew Cunningham was discovered at around 7am on the 10th of December by his boss. He had failed to turn up for work and as Andrew lived on site at the haulage firm where he worked in Earlsfield, his boss didn't actually have far to go to check on him. It goes without saying that what he discovered on that fateful morning will never leave him. Banging on Andrew's door but to no avail, he peered through the window but the curtains had been drawn tightly. Assuming Andrew had overslept, he banged on the window. But when there was no answer, he opened the door and entered the caravan. The smell of death hung in the air, and it took Andrew's boss a few seconds to take in the scene. Lay on the floor in a pool of his own blood was Andrew, his loyal employee. He was clearly dead, and Andrew's boss called the emergency services, who arrived quickly on the scene and sealed off the crime scene. Police spoke with Andrew's boss, who confirmed he had last seen Andrew at 6pm the previous evening. 
Despite a thorough forensic analysis of the scene, no murder weapon or DNA evidence was ever found. Initial newspaper reports claimed Andrew had been set upon by an angry mob who were chanting, Die, pedo, die. The mob, it was claimed, banded together after locals in a nearby pub discovered that Andrew had sexually abused a two-year-old girl. But DCI Scholar branded this theory nonsense, saying, There is no two-year-old girl. This was a rumour that we do not believe was true. As for the mob theory, we've looked at various CCTV images and there is no evidence of a mob being in the area. Certainly, if there was, they all left individually. One thing the police did establish from the crime scene was that there was no sign of a forced entry. One can only assume that Andrew was comfortable inviting the caller inside. Furthermore, the lack of evidence of a struggle in the caravan suggested Andrew was taken by surprise, so perhaps he did know who it was. And while the paedophile motive was the police's strongest line of inquiry, It is also possible that the murderer was motivated by money. Police discovered that £6,000 in cash had been stolen from the caravan. Speaking at the time, DCI Scholar said, Other lines of inquiry can't be ruled out. He had never been attacked before and there was no evidence of a hate campaign against him. No anti-Andrew Cunningham graffiti or anything like that. And perhaps the wounds to his genitals were a way of putting us off, making us believe this was all about his previous convictions. And I do think he has a good point here. He was a known paedophile. Perhaps he was also known to keep money in his home and any robber with half a brain would be wise to throw the police off the scent. Having said this, I do think that any robber with half a brain would seize the cash while Andrew was at work or down the pub, which he was known to frequent. After all, Andrew only lived in a caravan, so it wouldn't have exactly been difficult to get inside. Um, So yeah, I'm not too sure about that theory. And this did remind me actually of a previous episode, The Iceman Killer, which I believe was episode 24 of season one, the murder of Harry and Nicola Fuller. Harry had boasted down the pub that he kept large amounts of cash in the house and lo and behold, he was then murdered in a vicious robbery. What is inescapable is that such a murder would undoubtedly have provoked a bigger reaction within the local community had the victim not been a convicted paedophile. Locals at the Corner Pin pub, the one that was just 50 yards from where Andrew was killed, were reminded of his death by posters appealing for information stuck up around the bar. Not even the... Not even the law... I can't... I can never say that word. Not even the law of a £20,000 police reward prompted any of them to contact the authorities with information. At the time of his death, one drinker in the pub commented to a journalist... He was a nonce. Everybody around here knew it. I suppose there were some who felt he had it coming. Another said, I knew him, but I don't want to talk about him. I've had enough of talking about him to the police. Others claimed never to have seen or met Andrew, despite it being well known that he used to drink in that pub. Apparently he'd stopped going there after an argument, apparently over the allegation that he'd chatted up a teenage girl. His former boss at the haulage yard said, After that, he never went back there and I had people tell me I shouldn't employ him. But he was a good worker and a nice bloke. It's a shame the police have not been able to solve the murder yet. And I think that is a really kind thing to say, actually, particularly in light of Andrew's reputation. Um, You know, that would have been difficult for his boss to take him on. There would have been a backlash within that community and it would have been easy to bow to peer pressure. But he 
stood firm and said, no, I'm going to take him on. He's served his punishment and he's a good worker. And, you know, I think he kind of agrees with me. Nobody deserves to be murdered or tortured for any crime. Nobody else in the local community seemed distressed by the fact that no one had been caught, however. After the murder, Andrew's ex-wife told a newspaper, he had what was coming to him, no one should feel sorry for him. And his daughter said, I want to spit on his grave. Only Andrew's sister mourned his loss. She kept in touch with officers throughout the investigation and kept her eyes and ears open within the locality in the belief that she would hear someone slip up. But whenever she was around, people kept quiet. A lone bunch of flowers placed at the murder scene were later taken away by the man who had laid them there. He said at the time, when I found out he was a paedophile, I thought, I'm not going to leave flowers for someone like that, which I just think is so sad. Not that I'm sticking up for what he did. I absolutely am not. I just think I keep going back to it. But, you know, he certainly didn't deserve the end to his life that he had. Regardless of public apathy, DCI Scola and his team continued to plough ahead with their inquiries. On the six-month anniversary of the killing, he said, It has been a frustrating case, but so are all unsolved murders. I'm convinced that we just need that one key fact or piece of evidence, or one lucky break. And I believe you make your own luck, so if we carry on working this hard, we will solve the case eventually. Not long after making this statement, Scola and his team arrested a 50-year-old man in connection with the murder of Andrew. The arrest took place at 9am on Thursday, July the 9th in 2009, and the man was bailed to return to a South London police station in early September. But nothing came of this. The man had all charges dropped due to a distinct lack of evidence, and officers found themselves back at square one. Over the years, various appeals for information have been held, but no one has come forward and the case remains unsolved. In November 2012, an inquest was held into Andrew's death. Dr Shirley Radcliffe, sitting at the Westminster Coroner's Court, ruled that he had been unlawfully killed. The inquest heard that despite interviewing 800 people by this point, police had failed to locate his killer. The court also heard allegations that Andrew had been seen with three underage girls on the day prior to his murder. Dr Radcliffe acknowledged the rumours of Andrew's alleged sexual assault on the two-year-old girl, confirming that police had found no evidence to support that allegation or rumour. Andrew's sister told the inquest the area in which Andrew was murdered was swamped with CCTV and she was dubious as to why some had been switched off. Now I'm not sure how much I buy into that because I know that various CCTV cameras won't be working at any given time. Like any technology they're going to malfunction and I don't think anyone within the community that may have been responsible for Andrew's murder would have necessarily had the power to turn off cameras in that locality. It was quite well populated. We are talking London here. A couple of years later in 2014 the Metropolitan Police launched a fresh appeal. Detective Inspector Alison Hepworth of the Met's Homicide and Major Crime Command said, Andrew Cunningham suffered an extremely violent death and we continue to appeal for any information which may lead to the arrest of those responsible. A long time has passed since his murder and allegiances clearly change over time. Someone who felt they couldn't have spoken out immediately after the murder may now be able to provide some crucial information. We know that there was no sign of a break into Andrew's caravan and we still believe that his killer or killers were known to him. 
It was widely known that Andrew had previously been on the sex offenders register for an offence committed in 2000. However, in the six years since his murder, we have carried out an exhaustive investigation which has brought us no closer to discovering a motive. Andrew was the victim of a sadistic killing and it is still imperative that we solve this horrendous case. Regrettably, Andrew's killer or killers are still at large and I think Scholar is right when he says people within the community forget that there is a dangerous individual at large, a psychopath perhaps, someone who could suddenly turn and target another victim, someone with a warped sense of justice and an inflated sense of self. Donald Findlater, the director of child prosecution charity, the Lucy Faithful Foundation, said shortly after Andrew's murder, There are some 35,000 registered sex offenders in England and Wales, the majority of whom are being managed safely within our communities. But alleged mob action of this nature will make some of those offenders terrified, and I fear it may drive some underground and into isolation, which then makes it more difficult to keep tabs on them and they perhaps become more of a danger to children. I've paraphrased the last bit, but that's what he said. He went on to say the incident highlighted the danger of giving the public access to information about sex offenders, adding, when something like this happens, there are no winners and certainly children are not made safer because one individual has been killed. I completely understand why people do and should feel appalled by the harm that sex offenders cause, but members of the public taking the law into their own hands is not the way to deal with the situation. So, a slightly briefer case for us, particularly because it's an unsolved, there's no court case to cover, Um, but I'd be really interested to know what you think around this kind of vigilante killing would you take justice into your own hands or perhaps leave it to the professionals like me i think none of us will ever truly know what we are capable of until we are directly affected by a situation like this a situation that leaves us seeing red if bethan was here she'd be cringing at that she hates it when i bring it into to the script um thank you for listening Uh, give us a follow on all of the usual social medias i've now taken over instagram and twitter Bethan is still clinging on to Facebook, but um, come and find us. You'll see all of the usual bollocks there. So funny crime memes, photos of Bethan and her adorable baby, photos of Bethan and her not-so-adorable cats. Um, go get some free beer over at beer52.com forward slash seeing red and check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash seeing red podcast. Enough plugs? I think so. Um, right on that note, uh, we'll see you very soon. Bye. How does the offer of free beer sound to you? As a loyal listener of the show, we'd like to reward you with just that. Free beer. Courtesy of our friends at beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight free exclusive craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash seeing red and cover just £4.95 for the postage. As an added bonus for Seeing Red listeners, sign up within the next two weeks and get two extra free beers. So that's a total of 10 free beers. 
Beer 52 traversed the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest small batch breweries planet Earth has to offer. Each month they deliver a case with a different theme. Themes have ranged from Germany to Korea, Norway to South Africa and even California to Finland, but they haven't forgotten their roots. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the craft beer scene. And the beauty of Beer 52 is they don't hold you to ransom. There's no lock-in and you can leave any time. I've been a customer for 12 months now and let me tell you, there is no better feeling than arriving home from work to a fresh delivery from Beer 52. This month I have particularly enjoyed the Grand Slam, a brute IPA brought to us by Black's Brewery. I love strong beers and at 6%, this one definitely hit the spot. Your first box will be sent to you next day and will contain beer from all over Europe. You'll also get the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and if that wasn't good enough, they also throw in a tasty snack. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash seeing red to get your first case of eight beers for free. And don't forget, sign up in the next two weeks and get an extra two unmissable beers free. That's www.beer52.com forward slash seeing red. That's the word beer, then the numbers five, two, dot com. Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Rumble and I'm the host of the Open House Podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now, each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.